and maybe just in way of a show of hands, how many of you have ever received a bad gift? A lot of hands went up. Some of your hands went up pretty fast. Uh, maybe show a hand. The person beside you is the one who gave you that bad gift. No, don't raise your hand for that. <laughs> okay. All the husbands got very uncomfortable suddenly. It's like, you know, and, and men, I relate. Okay. I've been there. I'm a husband too. I, I know shocking, have actually given Danielle some pretty bad gifts over the years. I think the worst gift I ever gave was on Valentine's Day. So Danielle and I got married at the end of February. Now, I can't remember if this was the Valentine's Day before our wedding or the first Valentine's Day after our wedding, and we were going on to our first anniversary. The detail is a little fuzzy. It's almost 20 years ago, right? But what I do remember is that I gave a lot of thought to this gift, (laughs) a lot of thought, and I put a lot of effort into this. You see, if you don't know my wife, Danielle, she has a background in special care counseling. She has a heart for people. She loves coming alongside and caring for people in multiple ways. And when we first started dating and got engaged, she was still a student studying this stuff. So she was living on student income. And there were all these books that she wished she could have. And she would always talk about these books. Oh, I wish I had this book. Oh, I wish I had this book. I wish I had. And so I actually remembered them all. Right? That's worth something. Thank you. You can clap for that. I thought that was a good effort. Well, so here's the thing. On Valentine's Day, either 13 days before your wedding or 13 days before your first anniversary, presenting your new bride with 15 self-help books (laughs) didn't go over very well. And the men are looking at me like, I still don't see a problem with this. Okay, your wife will explain to you this afternoon over lunch what the problem was. You don't give a woman 15 self-help books. She cried for days. Oh, exactly. So you think I'm broken. You think I'm no good and I got to fix this. And I can like, no, no, it's so you can fix other people, baby. You're perfect. <laughs> I think I've paid. I think we're good. We're good. Thank be to God. So we can laugh about the idea of giving a bad gift, but is it possible as Christians living in our world today, saturated in the culture that we live in, is it possible for us to bring a bad gift to God? That's a great question to ask ourselves, and I want to do that today. Is it possible that we bring bad gifts to God? Just this past week, I had the privilege of getting together with some of the leadership in our our fellowship of churches. If you're not familiar with this, we are part of a grouping of churches called the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches of Canada. We're part of a region which is known as Feb Central. That's Ontario and English-speaking Quebec. There are currently 277 churches in our region, and we're actually working on planting between 30 and 35 churches in the next couple of years. So it's really an exciting time, you know, in our fellowship right now of seeing all these new churches and seeing church revitalization happening and church kind of life getting really exciting. And these leaders, what they've been doing is they've been going around studying what is it about certain churches that they're thriving, they're vibrant, they're doing really well, people are growing in their faith, new people are coming, people are accepting Jesus as Lord, people are getting baptized. 
why are some churches doing really well and other churches are dying? That they're closing their doors and shutting down their buildings and having to liquidate all their assets. Now, sometimes as Christians, we just go, well, that's because the Holy Spirit's at one church and not at the other church. Dangerous statement to make. (laughs) Dangerous. To sit there and say that the Holy Spirit's not in one church. The Bible says where two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is there. But the Bible also tells us that there is a special work of the Spirit of God if the church kind of hits on some of the key things that the Bible teaches. And and so they've been studying this and looking at churches in our fellowship of how are we doing in four key areas. The first is biblical preaching. Do we teach the Bible or does the pastor or the leadership of the church give their opinion? Does it sound more like Oprah than it does Jesus? The first thing is biblical preaching. The second is qualified leadership. Are people leaders in the church just because they've been at the church for a long time? Or do we actually put people with the spiritual gifts into positions of leadership? That's the second. The third is a good model of congregational care. That the spiritual health and care of the church doesn't rest on the shoulder of one pastor, but the congregation is caring for one another. And the final thing is heartfelt worship. And as they've gone around and studied churches and and saw where we are doing as a fellowship, when it comes to biblical preaching, we nailed it. Like 100%, do really well on that area. Gifted leadership, or called leadership, for the most part we're doing okay. There's a few people that are hanging on tooth and nail to their position of power and, and making kind of the church is life miserable <laughs> because um, they're gripping the church so tightly the church can't go where it should go, but they're more concerned with their power. It's not as bad as it used to be. There's still some work to do there. Congregational care. We're seeing less pastors burned out caring for everybody. Again, still more work we can do on that, but we are seeing many congregations embracing a model where they are caring for one another, and it's not all on one person to care for 200, 300, 400 people. Heartfelt worship. Cricket, cricket, cricket. In our fellowship, not so much. Not so much. And I think the reason for that is We don't know what that means. (laughs) You see, we all come from traditions. We all come from different backgrounds when it comes to the topic of worship. And so we can struggle with this topic because of the background we come from, the tradition that we come from. And so what I want us to do, because the Bible says our worship, our praise that we bring when we gather is a gift to God. And if we truly want to be a vibrant, growing Christian community that's engaged in reaching 10,000 people with the message of Jesus, we don't want to get this one wrong. We want to make sure that we are seeing what the Bible has to say about heart-filled worship in order to create that environment where the Spirit of God works. And so it's a struggle for our churches, and it's a struggle for ours. So let's look today at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15 is where I'm going to start. 
because we want to make sure that we are not bringing a bad gift or what I'm calling hollow worship. We don't want to bring hollow worship to God. Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. I just want to pause here for a moment. Look very, very closely at this verse. The religious people of Jesus' day are coming to the followers of Jesus, and they're asking a very direct question. Why are your disciples breaking the tradition of the elders? They didn't say, why are your disciples breaking the law? There's a huge difference in these two statements. He is not saying, why are you, Jesus, why are your disciples breaking the law? Because guess what? They're not breaking the law. What they're breaking is the tradition of the elders. And there's a big contrast between the difference. What is the law at play here? They're confronting Jesus and his followers over something called ceremonial cleanliness. I pronounced it right. It's my lisp. Sometimes these words come out funny. Ceremonial cleanliness. It's the idea on whether or not a person is worthy to worship God. And there's only two categories of people. You're either clean or you're unclean. You are either worthy to worship God or you are unworthy to worship God. And when Moses received the commandments of God and set up the the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and put together the priesthood that would lead the people of Israel into worship of God, it was God's law that the priests would be ceremonially, I knew I was going to mess it up eventually, ceremonially clean. For the priest to lead the people in worship, the priest had to be clean. And what the Pharisees did, these are experts in the law, what they did, they turned it around and said, no, 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 you know what, in order to ensure the, the, the priest stays clean, everybody has to stay clean. Now this isn't cleanliness like taking a shower. Because when you're on the bus and there's a lot of people on the bus, you're very grateful for the person beside you who took a shower that morning. This isn't the kind of clean it's talking about. It's a spiritual cleansing. And the Bible actually teaches us that a lot of things can make you unclean simply by touching it. If this is a concept that's really hard to grasp, how many of you, maybe parents, you you read the book or you took your kids to see the movie Diary of a Wimpy Kid? Anyone read that book, Diary of a Wimpy Kid? No one wants to admit it because of all the fart jokes in it. Funniest book I've ever read in my life, okay? It was, like, written for, like, 40-year-old men and 12-year-old boys. We have the same sense of humor, okay? But there was a part in the movie, part in the book, that was called The Cheese Touch, where on the basketball courts at this school, there was an old, moldy piece of cheese. And if anyone touched the cheese, all the other kids would ignore them. And you did not want to touch that kid because if you touched the kid who had the cheese touch, you now had the cheese touch. 
and no one would talk to you. And that person was now freed from the cheese touch. This is the same thing that Jewish people were following in Jesus' day. I know, sounds crazy, right? But this is what they were doing. There were certain things that would make you unclean. Certain animals, certain food, things like skin disease. I get that one. Uh, bodily discharges, a dead body, a pig, a mouse. So this is how it worked. If you had a mouse in your home that touched a pot, you put food in the pot and you served that food at dinner, everybody just became unclean. It'd be like a pandemic of trying to stop this and control who's clean and who's not clean. So they created all of these laws and this religious system because the priests, by law, had to stay clean. So we create a tradition to keep everybody else clean. And so what they had to do was this big elaborate ceremony where if you became unclean, you were supposed to wash your hands. So you would hold your hands like this, and then they would take a certain amount of water. Experts believe it's an eggshell and a half of water. I don't know how many millimeters that is. depends on the size of egg you eat. Okay? But you take an eggshell and a half of water, and you pour it over the hand. Now, it's got to go straight down the fingers and fall off the wrist. If it runs down your arm, you're still unclean, and you have to start over. If it falls and it hits your feet which is quite possible, lean out like that. Probably didn't have a Bible under their arm when they had to do it, okay? Um, it, but if it hit your feet, you're still unclean. Had to start over. So you'd start like this. They'd pour the water. You'd quickly turn the other way so the water didn't touch any other part of your body, and you washed. And a devout Jewish person would do this before every meal, before every course, before every different type of food on their plate. So imagine you go to McDonald's, I'm on this Weight Watchers thing, so I'm thinking about McDonald's a lot. You eat your French fries. Actually, before, you get to McDonald's, wash. You eat your French fries, wash. You eat your Big Mac, wash. Your chocolate shake, wash. Apple pie. What are we having for lunch? Salad? Thanks be to God. This huge, elaborate system. Not in any way commanded by God. The tradition of the elders, you're breaking it. That's what's going on. And so how does Jesus respond? This is one of the times when we can say, what would Jesus do? And sometimes the perfect response to what would Jesus do is unleash on them. Sometimes the answer to what would Jesus do is flip over tables, and whack people with a cord. <laughs> I thought that was funny. But it's what he did to hard-nosed religious people, where your tradition has become more important than you, to you than the word of God itself. And that's what Jesus does. He unleashes on them, say, you're accusing us of breaking your tradition? You're breaking the law of God. And he shows them where they're twisting God's word for their own benefit so that they can keep their money, so they don't have to take care of their aging parents, so they could live the way they want to live. And then Jesus says this, you hypocrites. 
Love that word. And in the Greek, when there's an exclamation point in the Greek, you know Jesus means business. (laughs) You hypocrites. Isaiah the prophet was right when he prophesied about you. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. They worship me in vain. Their teaching is merely human words. Your hearts are far from me. You worship me in vain. What would Jesus want to undo? He'd want to undo hollow worship. Worship that's done in vain. Worship that is more about the tradition than what God actually teaches about the topic of worship. As I study the Bible more and more, as I see churches, you know, and even including our own church, I can see how we get so incredibly confused on the topic of worship, right? Because fundamentally we see it as a style. We see it as the environment that we set up, whether it's rowdy or whether it's reverent. We think about it as song selection. And and how many of you remember the worship wars of the 80s and 90s? It was a dark time before the empire. Sorry, quote Star Wars for a second. I went, okay. Because what started happening in the worship wars is the church did something incredibly evil. And Satan gripped people's hearts and brought the devil's instrument into the building. I'm being sarcastic in case you can't guess it. I'm talking about drums, right? When we made the switch from choir and hymnals to drum, electric guitar, and PowerPoints, were probably some of the most devastating times in Western church history for the sheer number of people the church lost. Kids who walked away. If this is what following Jesus is all about, I'm done. Worship leaders getting nasty letters and nasty phone calls from congregation members over drums, electric guitars, and PowerPoints. Dark time. Thank goodness the worship wars were over, right? We're still in them. It's still happening. I mean, just on on September 9th, uh, I read an article by a Christian organization that I greatly admire. And I use their resources a lot. But on this point, they're wrong. And the title of the article was called The Slow Killing of Congregational Worship. And they went through this whole list of debates on things that are killing worship in the church. The problem is there wasn't a single Bible verse in the article. It's okay to have a preference. It's okay to like tradition. But is it done in vain? Is your tradition more important than the heart and word of God on the topic of worship. This is why we can't afford to get this one wrong. Just like biblical preaching, just like qualified eldership, just like care in the congregation, worship, you got to get it right. Because the Bible has a lot to say about it. This article 
as you went through it, this killing of congregational worship, turns out was written in Australia, birthplace of Hillsong worship, by a guy who doesn't like Hillsong. No Bible verse. Pure opinion. Pure speculation. And we take this stuff as Christians, when we read this article, we take it as gospel. It was sent to me by 25, if not more people. See, pastor, see, pastor, see, pastor, see, pastor. Show me the verse, show me the verse, show me the verse, show me the verse, show me the verse will always be my response. Let's talk about what the Bible says on this topic. I like worship. I don't like worship. I like it quiet. I like it loud. I like the hymnal. I like the red hymnal. I like the blue hymnal. Churches have split over the cover color of the hymn book. Ah, okay? We got to get this one right. We got to get this one right. And so what I want us to do is look at why we need to get this right. I grew up in a very traditional Christian environment. I grew up where they had the choir in the front, all of us wearing the white robes. I was in the choir as a little kid. I was cute. Holy smokes, was I cute. I got to find the pictures and show you. I had crooked teeth and big poofy hair and pimples, and I'm up there in my little white robe. And they had the big giant pipe organ in the back, and the little old lady was in her 80s, and she would just like, and you could feel the organ. just Like the, the robe would go, because the organ was so powerful. Very traditional, very liturgical. I remember as an adult, I went to my very first charismatic worship service. And this was like charismatic. Now, when I visit other churches, I'm usually pretty shy. I don't like to stand out, so I usually sit in the back row. And the worship team was leading us in song, and I'm back there, and I'm into it. Like, I got my eyes closed, my hands are in the air, my head's back, I'm into it. And I happen to be beside the flag lady. Do you know who the flag lady is? If you've been to one of these churches, she's the lady with a big giant pole and ribbons and flags. And she's waving it like this as part of the worship service. And so I'm there like this, and she's here like this, and then she winds down. Whack! Comes up like that. Catches me right here. Literally. And she had, and I'm not exaggerating, she was about 65. Little lady, but that tall. Picked me up off the ground. I land on the ground, fall, and then I slip on the concrete floor, and I'm on the ground. Everyone comes rushing, and they're laying hands on me. He's being laid in the spirit. He has a word to give to us, and, and we're going to prophesy now. And I'm like, well, what's the word? What's the word? The word is, who hit me? (laughs) I've been incredibly traditional, incredibly charismatic. I've been to worship services in languages I don't speak, with musical instruments I have never seen before. My question for you is, who's right and who is wrong? We all know the answer. No one's wrong. So why do we treat each other like they're wrong? Because we have a problem here. Worship isn't about the style. 
It's a condition of the heart. Worship isn't about the style of music. It is a condition of our heart. Christianity is not a hobby. Christianity is not some interest thing that we throw on top of our lives. Our lives is Christ. It is the center of our being. It is the center of everything that we do. Worship is not a style of music. It's a condition of our heart. Worship is about the overflow of what is going on here in our hearts. I'm going to call the band back up. And the band is going to play while I continue in this message. And I want all of us to take a look at our hearts. Is our worship in vain? Because we're more concerned with the tradition than we, that we came from or what the Bible says is the heart of God on the topic of worship. We've already agreed there's no wrong style. What's wrong is our hearts. So how do we get our heart right on this topic? Because we don't want hollow worship in our lives. We don't want to bring a gift that's in vain to our God. Those three things that the Bible teaches on how you and I express our worship. And the beauty of these three things is their spiritual disciplines. If you want to grow in your knowledge of the Bible, what do you do? You read your Bible more. Or you join a group and you find people to help you know God better and know the Bible better. What do you want to do if you want to implement prayer more in your life? You start praying more. Or you find other people to teach you about prayer. It's the exact same thing about worship. What do you do if your worship might be in vain? You take a little step, a little change, and you grow in it like any discipline. So as your pastor, as someone who loves you, I don't want your worship to be in vain. So let's look at what the Bible says of how we can express our worship. The first point is this. Sometimes we bow in worship. I think this is one of those baby and the bath water situations where in the Protestant movement, you know, especially in our Baptist movement where we ripped out the, the pews and we brought in comfortable chairs, we also ripped out the little bench to kneel. And the Bible says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. Kneeling is an interesting posture. <laughs> it's a posture we don't really like because it's a posture of surrender. <laughs> and sometimes this puts my heart in a very different position <laughs> when I'm down on the ground in surrender. Right? So sometimes we bow in reverence to God. Kneeling is submission that God is holy, that God is good, that God is just, that God is the one who saved me. And it wasn't me, it was all him. And I bow a knee. And here's the beauty of bowing. You and I as Christians, we have the privilege of taking a knee before God. Because one day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
every knee on earth and under the earth and heaven and hell will all take a knee. We can either do it in reverence or we can be made to do it one day. So sometimes we bow in reverence. The second point is this, is sometimes we lift up hands in adoration. And this is where the tradition hits the rubber, the rubber meets the road. Lifting hands is not a weird thing. Lifting hands is a Bible thing. (laughs) Psalm 63 says, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. This position changes the posture of our hearts. This is a position of surrender. God, I can't do this. I've got these sins in my life. I'm striving. I'm trying to please people. I'm trying to keep my job. I'm drowning, God. I give up. I need you. But it's also a posture of victory. That Jesus is victorious over sin. He's victorious over death. The the devil flees at his name. Surrender and victory at the same time. And I get it. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. You can start here. You can start here. You can go here. One hand in pocket, one hand up. Doesn't matter. It's not about the tradition. It's about your heart. Are you taking a position of surrender, a position of victory before the God who died for you, the God who loves you? And then the final way that we can grow in our worship is sometimes we worship with a sacrifice of praise. Again, another word we don't like as Westerners. Sacrifice. It actually takes some sacrifice to worship God. It took a sacrifice for you to get here today. There's other stuff you could have done. It took a sacrifice for you to be here on time. Oh yeah, I went there. Well, the first song, Pastor, is just a throwaway song. It doesn't matter anyways. It really only starts getting good by the time you preach because I don't like the style. Heart problem. The book of Hebrews says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. You see, sacrifice is not about, well, when God answers my prayers, then I'll worship him. Or when I feel his presence, then I'll worship him. That's not sacrifice. Sacrifice is if God never answers one of your prayers, you will worship him. If you never feel his presence, you will worship him. If this sin that's in your life that you've been praying for just still just can't escape, you still worship him. That family member you've been praying for that they'd accept Jesus and it's been 40 years, you still worship him. It takes sacrifice. Not comfort. Not ease. That's why it's a discipline. Because worship isn't based on our circumstances. It's based on the character of God. It's based on who he is and what he has done for you. Because worship isn't about the style of music. It's a condition of our heart. So I'm going to invite everyone to stand. And we're going to go into a time of extended worship. Those of you who love music just went, yes! 
Those of you who, oh, really, extended? Check your heart. Check your heart. It's not about the style of music, but the condition of your heart. Worship is not about what God has done or what God is going to do for you. Worship is about what God has done for you. That he loves you so much. That he came to earth in the person of Jesus, fully man, fully God. And he lived a sinless life. And he died for your sin. And in three, he spent three days in the tomb and then he rose from the dead. With victory over sin and death. That's why we praise him. The Bible has lots of names for God. And that's what drives our worship. Who is God? God is our rock. He's our redeemer. He's our righteousness, our deliverer, our defense. He's our strength. He's our shield. He is our salvation. That is why we praise him. Right? Jesus, we sing the words, we cry out his name. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the living water. Jesus says whoever eats this bread and drinks this water will never be hungry, will never be thirsty. Jesus is the true vine. We try to do so much stuff in life, but the fruit of our lives will not last. It's only the fruit produced from the true vine will last. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to God but through me. That's why we praise him. He's the good shepherd. And we learn to hear his voice. And we follow him wherever he leads us. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lion of Judah. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we praise Him because He is worthy of our praise. Worship is not a style of music. It is a condition of our hearts. Let us come into His presence. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. Honor and majesty surround him. Strength and joy are his dwelling. Give to the Lord the glory he deserves. Bring your offering of praise and come into his presence. Worship the Lord in all of his holy splendor.